Hello and welcome once again to the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we chronologically take you through episodes of Monday Night Raw from the Attitude Era. I am, of course, your host, professional wrestler Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex. As always, thank you for listening, and we welcome your feedback at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or reaching out to us via Twitter at rawattitudepod. Also, you can subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play as well. And of course, if you write a five-star review for us, I will be sure to read it on this very show and give you full credit for doing so. So first off, a big thank you to Martin Dixon for joining the previous bonus episode of the Raw Attitude Podcast, where we covered the pilot episode of SmackDown. Martin's an awesome guy, incredibly knowledgeable about wrestling, and he's always fun to have on the show, so I'm glad he was able to make the time. Be sure to listen to that episode if you haven't already, and don't forget to follow him on Twitter, at Bunny Suicida, because he's always posting some great content there. Big props to Martin. And speaking of our last episode, if you have already listened to it, you'll remember that I had mentioned that I would be attending the second ever episode of AEW Dynamite with Adam and Sal from the Rundown Wrestling Network. Well, we did indeed go to that show, and I can confirm that it was pretty fucking great. The Young Bucks private party match absolutely tore the house down, and we also got the AEW dark match between Kenny Omega and Joey Janela, where they basically tried to kill each other. It was a fantastic show from top to bottom, and I'm very glad that we went. It was a great time, the show moved quickly, the crowd was hot, what more do you need? As I've mentioned on this podcast before, I hardly ever watch episodes of Monday Night Raw in the present day, but I'm actually excited to watch wrestling on Wednesday nights because Dynamite has been really good so far. Now, obviously, we're still very early in the show's tenure, but for me, they're hitting a home run every week up to this point, and I hope it continues. Awesome stuff there. And finally, before kicking into the episode, I want to give a quick shout out to some of the other shows I've been on in case you've missed them. I joined friend of the show Sal for the episode of WrestleMania Salvation where he covered WrestleMania 30, and I also joined Sal and Adam for an episode of their new show called The AEW Rundown, where we all talked about our experience attending Dynamite. You can find both of those shows on the Rundown Wrestling Network, and, spoiler alert, at some point I will also be joining Adam on Nitromania to discuss Starcade 1996. Between all these other appearances, the Backlash Mega episode, the SmackDown pilot episode, this has easily been the busiest stretch of podcasting I have ever had. Thankfully, I've had some time to settle down for a bit, but good lord, it's been pretty damn hectic. But with that in mind, let's get into what you've all been waiting for this week's episode of Monday Night Raw. It is Monday, May 3rd, 1999, and we are pre-taped one day in advance, which I guess would technically make this Sunday Night Raw from San Diego Sports Arena in San Diego, California. Some of the other noteworthy events which have taken place in this same venue include four episodes of SmackDown, Vengeance 2001, where the first-ever Undisputed Champion was crowned, and one other episode of Monday Night Raw, the episode from August 3, 1998, covered in episode number 33 of this fine podcast, which is best remembered for being the show 
where Yamaguchi-san choppy-choppied Val Venus's PP. We open the show with highlights from the pilot episode of SmackDown last Thursday, where Shane McMahon and The Undertaker combined forces to form the corporate ministry. And then, later on in the evening, Vince McMahon knocked out Shane and attempted to grab a chair away from The Undertaker, which resulted in Taker laying out Vince with an unprotected chair shot to the skull. However, that did enable Stone Cold Steve Austin with enough time to nail The Undertaker with a stunner, and then he gave one to Shane as well, so Stone Cold reigned supreme as the show went off the air. But then, we also got footage from last night on Sunday Night Heat, where the corporate ministry got some measure of revenge by beating the crap out of Mankind, Test, Ken Shamrock, and The Big Show. And Shane McMahon then issued a challenge to his father. If Vince has the grapefruits, he'll meet him face-to-face tonight on Raw. So from there, we queue up the opening credits, the pyro, and the obligatory scanning of the crowd. Some of the noteworthy signs in the audience tonight include, Hey, I'm on TV. I love silicone. The Rock is my dad. I hate my job. I'd rather be in Nicole Bass. T&A for life. Hey Vince, Shane needs a spanking. Pervert with an arrow pointing downward. And Deborah's puppies put my ass in this seat. So yes, that fan bought a ticket with the specific purpose of ogling Deborah's breasts, and that is something that we all just accepted back in 1999. And we officially kick off the show with the corporate ministry walking to the ring. And as it turns out, they already have their own theme music, which is basically a sinister-sounding version of No Chance in Hell with Shane McMahon laughing maniacally. In fact, I'll go ahead and play a little more than a minute of it for you right here. As far as remix theme songs go, not too bad. Not too bad. It really puts the hell in No Chance in Hell, doesn't it? And personally, I think we could all use a little bit more evil Shane McMahon in our lives. So yes, the corporate ministry is heading to the ring, and Triple H, by the way, is now wearing a giant crucifix around his neck for some reason, so that's a first. And I guess now we know why he calls himself the King of Kings these days, hmm? But anyway, Shane grabs the microphone, and he tells us that, contrary to popular belief, he actually has quite a bit of compassion. He feels for all the people in the crowd who live paycheck to paycheck, hate their jobs, hate their wives, and so on. And he has a term for those people, losers. And yes, because it's still the 1990s, he holds up his index finger and thumb to form the letter L. Shane then hands the mic over to Triple H, who of course begins by calling The Rock 
Croc, just like he used to do in those DX parodies. At Over the Edge, he'll be facing the People's Champ, and he says it speaks volumes about the people that they've chosen Rock to be their champion. And Rock may enjoy coming up with hilarious catchphrases, but there will be nothing funny about what Triple H does to him at Over the Edge. And then, our next man to speak is The Undertaker. And Taker's first words here are, and I quote, It's real simple. I hate everyone. To which I have to ask, if that's the case, then why are you aligning yourself with what is literally the largest stable in the history of the WWF up to this point? I hate everyone, so I'm surrounding myself with a bunch of people. Can't argue with that logic. So Taker then says that he let Stone Cold Steve Austin go his own way for a while, but now he realizes that the two of them cannot coexist in the WWF. And so, at Over the Edge, he's going to take Austin's WWF title, but then he adds another interesting little tidbit. After he beats Stone Cold that night, he's going to take Austin with him out of the arena and bring him to Raw the next night, where he will sacrifice him to a power even greater than himself. So, mark that one on your calendars, folks. The episode of Raw after Over the Edge will feature Stone Cold being sacrificed, and there is certainly nothing that will change those plans. No, sir. So Shane then takes the microphone once again, and he informs us that for the second pay-per-view in a row, he's naming himself as the special guest referee for the main event. He unsuccessfully attempted to screw Austin out of the title at Backlash, but perhaps he'll make it work in a few weeks at Over the Edge. And he then starts to say that Vince McMahon has two hours to make it to the arena tonight so Shane can put his master plan into motion. But before we can get any further information on that, Shane gets interrupted on the ramp by four disgruntled employees. Mankind, The Big Show, Ken Shamrock, and Test. And much like Hacksaw Jim Duggan, all four of them are carrying large planks of wood for some reason. And so, Mick Foley has a microphone, so let's take a listen to what he has to say. Well, looky, looky what we've got here, Shane. Every one of us, at one time or another, worked for the corporation. And now every one of us stands here says... Well, I guess you could call us disgruntled former employees. So what we've done, test Shamrock, the big show, and myself, is we've uh, kind of banded together to form a union. Union? Now... We do not have fancy initials. We not, are not FIST or the Federation of Interstate Truckers. We are not SAG or the Screen Actors Guild. We are simply a union of people you ought to respect, son. Right, wait, wait, wait. Union people you ought to respect. Well, I guess we do have initials. Just call us up yours, Shane. You see, your dad used to come out here, and the whole crowd used to chant, A-hole, A-hole, and maybe they were right. But at least when Vince was running the show, we were compensated 
I think I speak for all of us when I see that since you took over, our paycheck sucks, Shane. So you may think you have our financial future in your hands, but you mess around with the union, you little twit, and you will find that we will have your testicles in ours. Hey. Let's go grab some balls, guys. Oh, wait a minute. The, the Union, armed with two by fours, headed to the ring. They're not going to do what? They got two by fours, JR. And the corporate ministry now, the tables have been turned somewhat. And there goes the big show. Meantime, Shamrock can tell it. So there you have it, Jesse Ventura finally got his wish after all these years, because at long last, there is now a union in professional wrestling. Or, as Mick Foley put it, a union of people you ought to respect, son, which gives them the abbreviation of Up Yours. And I'm not sure what was the worst abbreviation, that one or when Dustin Runnels was doing his born-again Christian gimmick, and he claimed to be part of an organization called Evangelicals Against Television, Movies, and Entertainment. Wink, wink. So yes, Foley says that Shane has their financial future in his hands, but they have his testicles in theirs, and this leads to one of the stranger rallying cries in wrestling history, as Foley then piggybacks on that statement by telling Big Show, Shamrock, and Test, quote, Let's go grab some balls, guys. How that one never made it onto a t-shirt, I do not know. So yes, the union then does indeed head down to the ring, and all four of them single-handedly clear the corporate ministry out of the ring with their two-by-fours. But as they retreat back up the ramp, we can hear Shane yelling that the union has not seen the last of the corporate ministry tonight, so I guess we shall see how that plays out. And also, just to put the capper on things here, I know that the union is often regarded as a pretty terrible stable, but when they clear out the ring tonight, you can hear loud union chants in the crowd, so the fans actually were into this faction in the early going. And on that note, I actually opened up Mick Foley's second autobiography, Foley is Good, which covers this time frame, so I could try to find out what his thoughts were on the union, but he doesn't even mention the faction in the entire fucking book. So, I guess that tells you pretty much all you need to know then, doesn't it? Alrighty. Now, for a quick change of pace here, if you listened to the previous episode of the podcast where I covered the SmackDown pilot with Martin Dixon, you'll remember that Billy Gunn attacked his fellow DX member X-Pac backstage after the New Age Outlaws lost their tag team title match to X-Pac and Kane. Well, last night on Sunday Night Heat... An apologetic Mr. Ass requested for X-Pac to come to the ring so that he could tell him that he was sorry, so let's quickly flash back to last night's episode of Sunday Night Heat. Right here in front of everybody, I'm man enough to say it, I apologize. Well, that takes a big man, that really does. 
DX reunited again. Hey, so what that means is DX is here to stay. Great reaction from this capacity crowd. They love it. Well, there you have it, just when it seemed like there was a glimmer of hope that the three remaining members of D-Generation X would be made whole once again, Billy sneak attacked X-Pac, further cementing his heel turn. And so, after a commercial break, we go into the arena for our first match of the evening, one half of the WWF Tag Team Champions X-Pac versus the freshly heel-turned badass Billy Gunn. And by the way, if the plan was to make Billy a bad guy... How the fuck do you give him that goofy ass man theme song? When I hear that song, my first thought is comedy babyface, not edgy badass. I mean, Jesus Christ, I think I'm starting to understand why Billy's heel run ends up being, shall we say, less than successful. But anyway, getting into this match, Jerry Lawler actually makes an amusing point at the beginning here. First, Triple H turned on X-Pac, and now Billy Gunn has turned on him. So maybe all of this is X-Pac's fault. And actually, Lawler could have added someone else to that statement. The fans are also turning on X-Pac at this point, so maybe he's just not very likable for uh, anyone. Well, except maybe Kane. But then Jerry Lawler proceeds to completely lose me with his commentary because he says, and I quote, Mr. Ass has the potential to be maybe the best superstar ever here in the World Wrestling Federation. Spoiler alert, that does not happen. But anyway, as for the match itself, this was actually very enjoyable going for almost exactly five minutes. And the finish came when X-Pac knocked Billy down in one of the corners and went for the Bronco Buster. But Mr. Ass hilariously stuck a foot into the air, so X-Pac basically jumped dick first right into a boot. And by the way, he did that right in front of referee Tim White, who did not disqualify Billy. So maybe it was because it was a defensive dick kick instead of an offensive dick kick? Who knows? And from there, X-Pac rolls around on the ground in pain for literally about 20 seconds, but when he makes it back to his feet, Billy nails him with a fame-asser. He makes the cover, Tim White makes the count, and that's good enough for the one, the two, and the three. Your winner, badass Billy Gunn. And after the match, Billy starts beating on X-Pac even further, so let's pick things up from there. So as you heard there, Billy started beating on X-Pac, and he then brought a chair into the ring, at which point the Road Dog Jesse James emerged from backstage. Road Dog got in Billy's face, and the New Age Outlaws' powers proceeded to explode, with Billy and Road Dog exchanging punches. 
and Road Dog got the better of that exchange, causing Billy to exit the ring. However, when Road Dog then went over to check on X-Pac, Mr. Ass snuck back into the ring and grabbed the chair again, and he then smashed Road Dog with an unprotected chair shot to the skull. Good lord. Now, one part of the segment that I didn't play in that clip there was that after Billy hits Road Dog with that chair, the lights go out and X-Pac's tag team partner Kane comes to the ring, so Mr. Ass just kind of leaves and heads backstage. Frankly, I didn't play that portion because, well, nothing really happened. And then, just like he did last week on Raw, Kane picked up the fallen X-Pac and carried him back to the locker room, so once again, it appears that Kane is learning how to feel remorse. But I do want to touch on one more aspect of this segment. So as you heard Jerry Lawler say in that clip I played, this likely signals the end of not only the New Age Outlaws, but also of Degeneration X itself. Even though I'm pretty sure the group continues on with just X-Pac and Road Dog for a little while, I think we can all agree that this ain't exactly the DX we've all come to know and love. It would kind of be like if Mick Jagger and Keith Richards both quit the Rolling Stones in the span of about a month. I mean, sure, the rest of the band could still continue and call themselves the Rolling Stones, but no one would really give a shit. That's pretty much where we stand with DX in May of 1999, and let's just say they ain't given us no satisfaction. So from there, we cut backstage where we see Shane McMahon's locker room door, and we can hear him angrily yelling. And that provides a fitting segue because, when we come back from commercial, the corporate ministry is, once again, heading to the ring in what has to be a record turnaround time. I mean, our opening segment was a corporate ministry promo, then we got one five-minute match, and now we're getting another corporate ministry promo. To say they loved putting the McMahons on television in 1999 would be the understatement of the century. So Shane says that he has now made some changes to tonight's lineup, and he then proceeds to schedule not one, not two, but eight fucking matches for tonight's show. A four corners match, Test versus Midian versus Viscera versus the Big Boss Man. A hardcore handicap match, Mankind versus the Acolytes. Triple H versus Ken Shamrock with China acting as the special guest referee. Mean Street Posse members Rodney and Pete Gass versus Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe. The Big Show versus The Undertaker. WWF Women's Champion Sable versus Debra in an evening gown match, which Shane stated was purely for his own amusement since this obviously has nothing to do with the corporate ministry. And in your main event, WWF Champion Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Rock in a lumberjack match with the corporate ministry acting as lumberjacks. Well, well, well. That is certainly quite the card, to be sure. However, once Shane books those matches, who should emerge from backstage but none other than Vince, Stephanie, and, making her very first on-camera appearance, the infinitely charismatic Linda McMahon. And so, let's pick it up from there. I don't think Mr. McMahon wanted them out here. I should say not. Not in this environment. Look at the Undertaker leering at Stephanie. That's sick. It is sick, King. You're right. Isn't this cute? Mom and Daddy's little girl. What's up, Vince? Shane, stop now before... You go too far. No, no, no. I haven't begun to go far. No, 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 no. 
I haven't begun to go far enough. This is my time. This is me we're talking about, not you. I'm running the show. Wow. No respect at all for his own father. What kind of human being is he? I think you're about to make a big mistake. And I think you better think long and hard before you do. You better listen, Shane. And you better get your stuff together because your family is not standing behind you. Nor should they. Come on, you want to bring it? I'm right here for you, Vinny Mac. How about me and you? Think of the box office, Vince. You know what? I've taken your company out from under you. I've taken everything. The only thing I want to take now is your ass. Oh, my gosh. Shane challenging his own father to fight him here tonight. Think of the box office. Vince versus Shane in this very ring. How about it, Pop? He is. That's what he's talking about. No way. Not right. Nope. The answer is no. But if you won't listen to me, you won't listen to your sister, Stephanie, then maybe, maybe just maybe your mother, Linda, maybe you'll listen to her. Shane, I'm begging you, son, in the name of our family, Shut your mouth, Mom! Mr. McMahon, surrounded. Don't do, don't do anything foolish, Mr. McMahon. What? That's getting his his wife and his daughter out of here, out of this ring anyway. Been surrounded by the Booker Ministry. What an insolent human being is Shane McMahon. And the crowd chanting. But what they'd like to see Vince do to his son? Can you believe he told his own mother to shut up? I can't. No, I can't. Absolutely not. That is disrespectful and pathetic. It is a sad day in the McMahon family. I can tell you that. I can only imagine. They must hey, be. Vince, you know what? I can have him do it again. Do what? Who do you think was the mastermind behind the Undertaker abducting your little girl, Stephanie? What? Oh, come on. No. It was me. Good God. I knew if Daddy's little girl was in a weakened position that you would crumble. That you would leave the business like a hot potato and I was there to pick up the pieces. How do you think the Undertaker got into our house? How do you think he got Stephanie's little teddy bear? How do you think that the pictures were taken? It was Shane. It was all me. That's sick. And Stephanie, who do you think picked out your wedding dress? Wasn't it the bomb? I got it. I can't. Hey, wait a minute. No, don't do it. Look out. Don't do it. Vince coming to the ring. Miss McMahon now trying to get a piece of his son's chain. But what he's getting is an assault of get- meeting from the corporate ministry.
Say yes. I'll see you tonight. You damn right. So as you heard there, Shane challenged Vince to a match right here tonight, to which Vince initially refused. Shane then tried to provoke Vince even further by telling his own mother to shut her mouth, but despite beat-his-ass chants from the crowd, Vince then took Stephanie and Linda and started heading up the ramp. However, it was at that point that Shane admitted that he has been working with The Undertaker the entire time. The Black Wedding, the teddy bear, the compromising pictures, it was all thanks to Shane. Pretty evil stuff, and Shane even says that he picked out Stephanie's dress for the wedding. However, he then retroactively almost ruins the promo entirely by asking Stephanie, quote, Wasn't it the bomb? Eesh. So yes, this then causes Vince to run into the ring, but of course the corporate ministry completely overwhelms him and beats his ass. They then head back up the ramp, where Shane says, I'll take that as a yes, which we can hear Vince confirm. So yes, tonight, in this very ring, it will be Vince McMahon versus Shane McMahon. And after a commercial break, we then cut backstage, where Vince tells Stephanie and Linda that he's going to kick Shane's ass, much to his wife and daughter's chagrin. Vince then tells two police officers to take Stephanie and Linda back to their hotel, so they won't have to basically see him commit child abuse. Probably the right call. And we then head back into the arena for the first match that Shane scheduled, Mean Street Posse members Rodney and Pete Gass versus Pat Patterson and Gerald Briscoe. Now, remember that just a few weeks ago on Raw, Shane fired the Stooges from the corporation and replaced them with the Mean Street Posse, so Patterson and Briscoe can actually get some measure of revenge here tonight. However, the Stooges actually come to the ring dressed in full business suits, and they appear to tell the Posse that they aren't dressed to wrestle to which Rodney and Pete Gass respond by shoving the two legends. And, well, that proves to be quite the mistake for the posse, because Patterson and Briscoe then proceed to beat their asses all over the ring. And it should be noted, this somehow gets a monstrous reaction from the crowd. Apparently, they love seeing two elderly men beat the crap out of two guys in sweater vests, so good for them, good for them. So after beating on them in the ring for a bit, the Stooges toss both posse members to the floor, where Patterson then whips Pete Gass into the steel steps, and Briscoe throws Rodney into the front row. The Stooges then re-enter the ring, where Earl Hebner raises both of their hands, and Tony Chimmel announces them as the winners of the match for some reason? That's a bit strange because there was no pinfall, no submission, and I'm pretty sure Hebner was never actually counting anyone out, so I guess maybe the decision was a referee stoppage? Who knows? Either way, it goes in the books as a W for Patterson and Briscoe. Now, let me quickly clarify one thing here. There is a match on Raw between the Stooges and the Mean Street Posse, which famously gets a ridiculously huge rating. This is not that match, but spoiler alert, you may want to tune in to the next episode of this podcast because, I dare say, this feud must continue. And after that match concludes, we quickly cut backstage where Shane McMahon is with the corporate ministry and he tells them that he wants them to pay a quote-unquote office visit to someone, most likely his father. They then proceed to walk off, so I suppose we shall see what happens from there. 
And then we cut back inside the arena where it is now time for the next match that Shane McMahon has booked, and it is a four corners match Test versus the Big Boss Man versus Midian versus Viscera. And not to state the obvious here, but this is labeled as a four corners match, but for all intents and purposes, this is really Test facing off against three corporate ministry members. The only difference is that instead of Bossman, Midian, and Viscera standing on the same side of the ring, they all stand in different corners when they're not wrestling, but essentially it's a three-on-one handicap match. And Midian, by the way, is wearing a t-shirt with his own name misspelled on the back, so yet again we apparently can't decide if Midian ends in E-O-N or I-A-N. Who the fuck cares? Good point. Moving on. Speaking of Midian, though, at one point, Tess picks him up on his shoulders to attempt what I think was supposed to be a Samoan drop, but it looked like he lost control of Midian while he was holding him, and he almost dropped him right on his fucking head. Thankfully, it appeared that Midian was okay after that, but damn, it did not look pretty. And shortly after that, Viscera then proceeded to distract referee Jimmy Corderas, and while he was doing that, Midian grabbed Tess's arms. The big boss man then grabbed his nightstick and swung it at Tess's head but he moved out of the way, causing Bossman to accidentally nail Midian instead. Tess then nailed Bossman with a boot, he covered Midian, Corderas turned back around, and that was good enough to secure the three count. So yes, essentially, Tess just beat three corporate ministry members all by himself. Okay then. And after the match ended, Bossman, Midian, and Viscera ganged up on Tess and started beating on him, but then... Tess's new union stablemates, Mankind, The Big Show, and Ken Shamrock, came down to the ring to chase them off. And I have to say, so far the union is looking like a very formidable stable, and certainly one that will last for a long, long time. But I do want to get back to the corporate ministry for just a moment here. Now, as a reminder, the corporate ministry was formed last week on the pilot episode of SmackDown, where they wrestled three matches. Ken Shamrock defeated Bradshaw, lost. Mankind defeated the Big Boss Man, loss. And Stone Cold and The Rock defeated The Undertaker and Triple H by disqualification, loss. And then last night on Sunday Night Heat, Ken Shamrock and Test defeated The Acolytes, loss. And now, so far tonight, the faction has competed in two matches. Patterson and Briscoe defeated the Mean Street Posse, loss. And Test just single-handedly beat Boss Man, Midian, and Viscera, loss. So that means that so far, your brand new Super Heel Stable has lost its first six matches. I don't mean to state the obvious here, but shouldn't you be building them up to be an unstoppable unified force? Instead, what you've basically got is a giant jobber group, so not exactly a strong start to what may be the largest faction in WWF slash WWE history. Sweet Jesus. But anyway, speaking of the corporate ministry, we then go backstage where The Undertaker, Triple H, China, and Paul Bearer are shown exiting Vince McMahon's office, and we then see Vince lying on the ground, having been assaulted by the only members of the group who actually matter. And after another commercial break, we go back into the arena where Shane McMahon is heading to the ring. He grabs a microphone and calls out Vince, who we just saw get his ass kicked moments ago. After quite a bit of taunting, Vince doesn't show up to answer the challenge, so Shane instructs referee Earl Hebner to raise his hand and declare him the victor, but before that can happen, Vince McMahon does indeed limp out from backstage, clutching his ribs. Vince makes it about halfway down the aisle before he can no longer support himself, and he falls face-first down on the ramp, which admittedly looked a bit unintentionally funny, I have to say. 
And of course, Shane sees that as an opening, so he runs toward Vince and clotheslines him, and Shane then rolls Vince into the ring. Hebner signals for the bell, and yes, our father versus son match is officially underway. And the very first thing Shane does is position Vince on the ground in one of the corners, and yes, from there, Shane goes to the opposite corner, gets a running start, and hits Vince with a Bronco Buster. And say what you will about family members being at odds with each other, but a good rule of thumb is that a son should never bounce his own balls into his father's face. That's just not right under any circumstances. But so Shane hits a running clothesline on Vince, and then he goes for another one, but, well, let's just pick it up from there. So when Shane attempted a clothesline, Vince ducked and nailed his own son with a clothesline of his own, which was followed by two middle fingers to Shane's face, and then, yes, a stone-cold stunner to Shane. And Vince even did Austin's patented in-your-face head-wiggling trash talk while Shane was lying on the mat. Nice touch there. And after that, Vince pinned Shane, and he did indeed score the one, the two, and the three. And so... Even though The Undertaker, Triple H, and China beat the living shit out of Vince in his office right before the match, Shane McMahon was still not able to beat his own father, bringing the corporate ministry's record to a pathetic 0-7. Yikes. After the match concludes, Vince rolls out to the floor and limps back up the aisle, but we see Shane staring him down back in the ring. Shane then yells at him, quote, This is far from over, to which Vince McMahon is probably thinking, God, I sure hope not. Your faction blows, son. But before we move on, I have to say that I'm very surprised that they gave away Vince versus Shane on free TV on such short notice. This feud has been going on for well over a month now, and I really feel like they should have saved this one for a pay-per-view. Now granted, neither guy is a trained worker, but they could have easily just done a garbage brawl match, and you know how I know that? Because they have a really good garbage brawl match two years from now. All I'm saying is that sometimes Vince Russo shoots his wad way too early with these feuds. Vince versus Shane should not be a two-minute match in the middle of Raw with only a 20-minute build. Now, obviously, the feud's going to continue, but that kind of makes it all the more nonsensical that they gave this match away so quickly. Just my two cents. But sorry, I'll quit my bitching about how I want to see two non-wrestlers have a lengthier match. So after another commercial break, we go back into the arena for our next contest, and it is the Hardcore Handicap Match, the Acolytes versus Mankind. And right off the bat, Jerry Lawler has to toe the company line by saying, quote, This might have been a good night for Mankind to do something union people are famous for doing. Call in sick! Because of course, despite the fact that wrestling desperately needs a union, Vince McMahon would never go for it, so the king has to mock them. And again, this is coming from Jerry Lawler, who was 
not on Raw or the SmackDown pilot last week. Remember, Jim Cornette was doing commentary in his place during the Black Wedding. And by the way, Jerry, what the fuck is wrong with calling in sick exactly? People get sick all the goddamn time. I'm willing to bet you used a few sick days when you suffered a fucking heart attack live on the air. So by your logic, does that make you a total pussy for not manning up and getting right back to work? I mean, geez, the company was counting on you and you let everyone down, you fucking idiot. Unions are the reason why we have a goddamn weekend, which I think we can all agree is a good thing. Jerry Lawler, you dipshit. Anyway, sorry, sorry, moving on. So because this is a hardcore match, Bradshaw comes to the ring holding a shovel while Mick Foley has brought a 2x4. And right away, both of those weapons end up coming into play as Mankind chokes Farouk with the 2x4 in one of the corners, which allows Bradshaw to sneak up on Foley and absolutely clobber him in the back with the shovel. Fucking ouch. And it's at this point that I notice something rather odd. So remember how I said earlier this show was pre-taped one day in advance? Well, apparently the WWF decided to take advantage of that pre-tape by dubbing in fake chants. If you watch this match on the WWE Network, you'll hear loud Foley chants, but you can see that no one in the crowd is actually chanting. I have never seen a, a hardcore handicap match in my life. The first ever for Raw here, and Mankind tossed outside like some, some garbage. Watch your own 2 by 4 Remember how the WWF did the Gilbert character and piped in fake Gilbert chance to mock what WCW was actually doing with Goldberg? Well, uh, yeah, they're kind of doing something pretty similar here for Mankind by adding those chants in post-production. And the worst part is, they're doing it for a guy who doesn't even need it. Mick Foley is already incredibly over. He doesn't need the help. Such a bizarre decision to do that dumb shit here, but oh well. So as you might expect, the Acolytes spend the majority of the match in control, but eventually Foley manages to mount a slight comeback. In a spot very similar to what we saw in the test match, Bradshaw held Foley's arms behind his back, and Farouk swung a chair... But Foley ducked, causing Farouk to nail Bradshaw with a hard, unprotected shot to the head. Because no episode of Raw in 1999 would be complete without multiple chair shots to the cranium. So Mankind then locked Mr. Sacco on Farouk, but Bradshaw broke it up with a clothesline from hell. The Acolytes then set up two chairs in the middle of the ring with the seats facing each other, so clearly they must have been watching Foley's match with the Big Show at WrestleMania 15. The Acolytes then nailed Foley with a spike powerbomb right onto the chairs. Bradshaw made the cover, referee Jimmy Corderas made the count, and yes, that was enough to give the victory to the Acolytes. And so, the corporate ministry's long nightmare is now over. In their eighth match, they have finally picked up their first win. Well done, well done. But honestly, though, I had kind of assumed that Mankind would find a way to win anyway, since he's very much still in high standing, and he created the Union faction earlier tonight, whereas the Acolytes at this point in time are basically just another tag team on the roster. But no, Bradshaw and Farouk do indeed pick up the win. So mark that one down in your history books, folks. And after another commercial break, we go right back into the arena for our next match, 
Ken Shamrock versus Triple H, with China acting as the special guest referee. Triple H and China, by the way, do not enter to the corporate ministry theme, but rather they enter to that random theme song that Hunter has been using since Backlash. And if you don't know the one I'm talking about, feel free to go back and listen to that Backlash mega episode I did with Sal from WrestleMania Salvation, because I play an excerpt of the theme on that show, and it is not great. Still, though, much better than Billy Gunn's. So China is, of course, rocking a black-and-white referee shirt, and before the match begins, she proceeds to pat down Shamrock to look for any foreign objects. And then, for seemingly no reason whatsoever, she glances at Shamrock's crotch and then holds up her index finger and thumb as if to signal, you have a small penis. That was just unnecessary, but admittedly, kind of funny, actually. So for the first few minutes of the match, China was actually pretty impartial, allowing Hunter and Shamrock to go at it without making her presence felt. But then, of course, as is the custom for heel referees, when Triple H hit Shamrock with a clothesline and attempted to pin him, she went to the ground and attempted a fast count, but Shamrock kicked out at two. And shortly after that, Shamrock managed to put Hunter into a leg lace, causing great pain to Triple H, at which point, China went to the ground and raked Shamrock's eyes. Hunter then told China to cover her eyes with her hands, which she did, and he hit Shamrock with a knee right to the balls. We've seen the heel special referee cliche many times in professional wrestling, but at least they're getting creative with some of these spots, so props to them for that. I appreciate it. And speaking of which, eventually Shamrock put Triple H into the ankle lock, and when Hunter was just shy of being able to grab the ropes, China grabbed them for him and pulled them closer to Hunter's hand, enabling him to grab them. However, Shamrock refused to relinquish the hold, so China jumped on his back and started choking him. From there, Shamrock then grabbed China as though he was about to hit her with a belly-to-belly -belly suplex, but Triple H broke it up just in time. China then nailed Shamrock with a low blow, and that provided the perfect opening for Triple H to hit a pedigree. He made the cover, and China made the completely normal three count not rushed at all, and that was enough to give the victory to Triple H in what was actually a very solid seven-and-a-half-minute TV match. And after the match, Hunter actually laid in two more kicks to Shamrock's ribcage for good measure, and then he and China headed backstage to the accompaniment of his terrible theme music. The elevation of a heel Triple H is beginning, folks, but be warned that your enjoyment may vary. So after commercial break, we once again go back into the arena for our next match, The Undertaker, accompanied by Paul Bearer, versus The Big Show. Hey, speaking of pay-per-view caliber matches they're giving away for free, the very first match between Undertaker and Big Show. And before the match begins, we quickly cut to footage from last week's episode of Raw, where The Big Show attempted to stop the Black Wedding by clearing out some members of the Ministry until The Undertaker hit him with a baseball bat. But just to be clear, Taker didn't really hit him that hard with the bat. He just kind of, like, grazed Big Show in the shoulder with it. But still, you get the idea. It was effective in taking out the big man. But let's just say that you may want to remember that little spot for just a few moments from now. So early on in the match, the Big Show was able to turn away the Undertaker's offense and pretty much dominate the dead man, which is admittedly something we don't see very often. So Taker ducks out of the ring, and it's at this point that we get a rather clever spot. Paul Bearer pulls out a bottle of ether, and we know that it's ether because Jerry Lawler flat out says it on commentary, and he even coughs as though he can smell it too. And let's just say that it doesn't exactly surprise me that Jerry Lawler would know exactly what ether smells like, but that's a, that's a whole separate issue. 
So anyway, instead of the standard spot where someone pours ether into a rag, Taker instead pours the ether all over his elbow pad and he re-enters the ring. And so, let's go ahead and pick it up from there, because this ends up leading to a rather awesome spot. Look at the people, even the people here at ringside are, oh look at that! And the Undertaker, with a sleeper, and he's got that elbow pad right in the face, right in the nose of the mid-show. That elbow pad has been soaked and saturated with ether! And if that is ether, I don't care how big you are, you're going to lose consciousness. And the mid-show... Oh, he's down! It's right in his face and he's down! The Undertaker's got that, that ether right in the face of the Big Show, who's down to one knee now. And again, the Undertaker trying to render the Big Show unconscious, and he may be successful here. Oh, maybe not. Oh, my gosh, how did he do that? Snapmare takeover by the biggest athlete in the world at 500 pounds. And now Paul Bear, what's yeah. that? Oh, that's, that's a baseball bat. The Undertaker's got a baseball bat. A baseball bat? The Undertaker, the ball bat. What's he going to do here? Under oh, no! My God! My God! Good God, the baseball bat broke on Mimic Show's head. Good God Almighty! I can't believe it! The Undertaker just broke the baseball bat right over the Big Show's head. For God's sakes, the Big Show's been busted open. The Undertaker is relentless. The evilness of the Undertaker. This, this is my show. Big Show cannot defend himself. This is my show. The Undertaker telling the Big Show that this is the Undertaker show. The Big Show unconscious from that vile blow to the head from that baseball bat. So yes, Taker puts the Big Show into a sleeper hold, making sure to put his ether-soaked elbow pad under the big man's nose. Big Show mounts one final comeback, but when he does that, Paul Bearer pulls out the aforementioned baseball bat, and he hands it to The Undertaker. And remember how I said that Taker kinda took it easy on Big Show last week when he grazed him in the shoulder with the bat? Uh, not so much this week, because Taker literally smacks Big Show in the skull with the bat this time around. And of course, this is obviously a gimmicked baseball bat, but with that being said, it still looked fucking great, and the bat even broke in half when it made contact with Sho's head. From there, Sho went down to the canvas, and we could see that he actually did a blade job, because his forehead was busted open. And for you astute observers out there, when they show a replay of this spot, it looks like you can actually see Big Sho do the blade job while he's still standing there, right before Taker makes contact with the bat. Not exactly smooth of them to do multiple replays where you can clearly see that, but still, well played by Big Show. So Taker then chokes Big Show for a bit before he and Paul Bear head backstage, and presumably Taker was disqualified for attempting to murder his opponent, but clearly, the corporate ministry has gotten the last laugh on the WWF's largest wrestler. And again, not to belabor the point here, but you should definitely make an effort to go back and watch this spot, because it looked very convincing. And I actually think the spot was even more impressive because we've seen Ken Shamrock and Bradshaw using a baseball bat over the past few weeks, but they've been doing the safe sort of spots where you choke someone with the bat or you jab the guy in the stomach with it or you kind of like put your hand over the butt of the bat and quote unquote hit someone with it. So I'm sure the fans were probably expecting something similar here. But no, instead, The Undertaker fucking 
clobbers Big Show right in the skull with a swing that would have made 1999 Mark McGuire proud. So yes, definitely go back and watch this spot because I feel like it's pretty underrated and not one that a lot of people remember, but holy shit, it is brutal. And so, after another commercial break, we go right back into the arena for our next match, and it is the evening gown match for the WWF Women's Championship, Champion Sable versus Challenger Deborah. Or is it a title match? Well, Deborah enters first, but when it comes time for Sable to show up, instead, we see the women's champion on the Titantron. Sable informs us that she's at the Playboy Mansion preparing for her second Playboy photo shoot, so she'll be unable to compete tonight. However, she says that she has sent a stunt double to replace her, at which point an evening gown wearing Nicole Bass emerges from backstage. And as you might expect, Deborah is none too happy about this development, and so instead of doing battle with Nicole Bass, Deborah immediately removes her own evening gown, proudly displaying her bra and thong to all the fans. Now, because the rules of this match stipulate that the first woman to get her clothes removed is the loser, Deborah essentially just willingly jobbed herself out, but in the fans' eyes, she is surely a winner. However, Nicole Bass is not pleased with Deborah essentially forfeiting the match, so she grabs Deborah by the bra strap, seemingly preparing to show her, uh, puppies to the world, at which point, Jeff Jarrett runs out from backstage and nails Nicole in the head with a guitar. Not quite as impressive as a baseball bat, but still pretty good. For some reason, though, this then causes Val Venus to run to the ring and clothesline Double J down to the floor. So was Val coming to Nicole Bass's rescue after Nicole has essentially been stalking him over the past week? Well, not exactly because Val actually picks up the still-in-her-underwear Deborah and carries her backstage, with Jarrett eventually chasing after him. Oh, that crafty Val Venus, always picking an opportune moment. And after one final round of commercials, we then get footage from During the Break, where Jarrett caught up to Val Venus backstage, and the two of them started brawling until WWF officials managed to separate them. However, something tells me that this feud must continue. Hooray! And so, we go back into the arena for our main event of the evening, and what a main event it is! WWF Champion Stone Cold Steve Austin versus The Rock in a lumberjack match with the corporate ministry acting as the lumberjacks. Or, well, at least that was the match that was billed anyway. In reality, there was actually no match whatsoever, because the corporate ministry quickly entered the ring and just started beating the crap out of Austin and Rock. However, that only lasts for a little while until Vince McMahon showed up at the ramp, and he then signaled for a bunch of wrestlers to run down to the ring and provide some backup, including The Union, X-Pac, Road Dogg, The Brood, Mark Henry, D'Lo Brown, The Godfather, Hardcore Holly, and Al Snow. By the way, poor Mark Henry, huh? He just returned on the pilot episode of SmackDown after being off TV for two and a half months, and the only way he can get on Raw is by being in a massive crowd brawl. Sexual chocolate, not exactly high on the totem pole at this point, to say the least. But anyway, the corporate ministry and the massive collection of jobbers all end up brawling through the crowd, leaving The Rock behind to go three-on-one against The Undertaker, Triple H, and China. So the four of them then brawl up toward the stage area, and so, let's pick it up from there. I can't believe everybody! Looks like everybody in this arena is fighting! 
dismantled here. These guys are fighting everywhere out here. The Undertaker, the most evil SOV I've ever seen in my life. And Hilsey now with a tee shot. Trying to get her some from The Rock. I think if there's anybody more evil than The Undertaker, it might be Shane McMahon. Oh, wee. Oh, what a shot there by The Undertaker. A free shot. The Rock. Well, there's Austin. There's the Rattlesnake. The Rattlesnake hammered The Undertaker. The Rock fighting back against Triple H. He came up that, that elevator. It is. Right hand by The Rattlesnake. The Rock and Hills are getting it on. On one side of the stage. So with The Undertaker, Triple H, and China all working over The Rock, Stone Cold eventually reemerges by, of all things, coming up through that little elevator area where the brood usually enter from, and he starts brawling with The Undertaker. And then both Undertaker and Austin go right back down under the stage, thanks to that elevator, leaving Rock alone with Triple H and China. And unfortunately for The Rock, going two-on-one with The Great One doesn't work out too well for him because Triple H picks up one of the red siren lights that's positioned at the edge of the stage, and he hits Rock in the face with it. And at this point, Stone Cold then once again reemerges from under the stage, and it looks like he actually arrives a bit too early because he goes to grab Triple H right as Hunter throws The Rock off the stage and through several tables on the floor below. Ouch. And shortly after that, The Undertaker returns as well, and, not to be outdone, Taker then throws Austin off the stage and threw some tables on the floor. And honestly, I'm actually pretty surprised that Stone Cold was willing to take that bump, because those tables are pretty much the only barrier between him and the concrete. And let's just say, if I had almost been paralyzed with a neck injury two years prior, 
I'd be pretty hesitant to go flying off the stage like that. But Austin and Rock do indeed get thrown off the stage and down to the production area below, and they lie on the ground, selling their injuries. And we then go off the air with the admittedly pretty cool visual of The Undertaker, Triple H, and China looking down at the carnage they've caused as Jim Ross informs us that the corporate ministry has prevailed by destroying their two biggest foes. Certainly a very impactful way to end Raw, and truthfully, I had no recollection of Austin Rock ever taking those bumps, so that was definitely a very nice surprise for me anyway. However, we're not done yet, so on that note, let's take it to the wrap-up. Yo, I slayed them seeds back in the rec room era. My style broke motherfucking backs like him for terror. I freak beat slamming like Iron Sheik. We dedicated to cast that's been thugging. Vinny Paz got more hoes than Jim Duggan. I'm bananas, out of my fucking mind. It won't let me back in. Cause I was down before the heights like Dusty Rhodes and Bob Backlund. Bruno San Martino, Stan Stasiak. Now the rockin' stone cold on my favorite maniac. The top rooster pluckin'. Chickens when they pluckin'. The WWS fans for women where we fuckin'. The Ratings Recap Last week, Raw was victorious in the ratings, 5.99 to 3.89, and, well, the news ended up being even worse for Nitro this week. Why? Because Raw shot up to a 6.38, while Nitro dropped all the way down to a 3.4, a margin of almost three full ratings points. And going a bit further in depth, the second hour of Raw was the highest rated hour in the history of the Monday Night Wars, while conversely, Nitro's final hour was their lowest rated hour in several years. In fact, from 10 o'clock p.m. to 11 o'clock p.m. Eastern Time, Raw's rating actually tripled Nitro's rating. Not good times. But of course, for the sake of comparison, here's what you could have been watching over on the TNT network instead of Monday Night Raw. Billy Kidman and Rey Mysterio defeated Scott Armstrong and Steve Armstrong to retain their WCW Tag Team titles. Buff Bagwell defeated Ernest the Cat Miller. Hack and Bam Bam Bigelow fought each other to a draw in a hardcore match that lasted almost 14 minutes, and clearly that will certainly not piss off the majority of your fans. Conan defeated Horace Hogan via disqualification. Ming defeated David Flair. Now, now there's a fun matchup I want to see. Booker T defeated Kurt Hennig via disqualification to retain his World Television Championship. And in your main event, Diamond Dallas Page defeated Ric Flair to retain his WCW World Heavyweight Championship. Also, by the way, a quick fun side note for you historians out there. Flair actually hits the top rope axe handle in this match, so history was obviously made. Speaking of Ric Flair, though, on this night, Nitro was in Charlotte, North Carolina, a.k.a. Flair Country, and that used to mean an automatic sellout for WCW. Tonight, however, for an arena that can hold a whopping 23,000 people, they drew 9,700 fans, of which only 6,300 paid. Ouch. And that provides a fitting segue into this week's excerpt from the book The Death of WCW by R.D. Reynolds and Brian Alvarez. Now remember, WCW is still doing the storyline where Ric Flair has been institutionalized, and the authors reference that at the beginning of this quote here. Quote, It wasn't until the following week in Charlotte, North Carolina, that Flair returned to TV. He explained that Arn Anderson had bailed him out. Bet you never knew that when you're confined to a mental institution, you can leave by simply posting bail. His first order of business was to put a bounty on Kevin Nash's head. 
Over the course of the show, the dollar figure changed from $100,000 to $50,000 to $1 million, depending upon who was telling the story. If it wasn't apparent to everyone by this point that the company was in severe trouble, the Charlotte show offered proof positive. The fact that the show was massacred by Raw in the ratings battle by over three points was one thing. More damning, however, might have been the fact that despite always drawing big crowds in the Carolinas, they had to give out thousands of free tickets just to get a respectable crowd into the building for TV. WCW had no one to blame but themselves for that. Over the years, they had booked Flair, a hometown hero in the region, so badly that it had become a running joke that whenever they were about to run a show there, something stupid was inevitably going to happen with him. Obviously, having Flair go crazy in a mental institution in a period when heels were supposed to be young and cool was stupid. As entertaining as Flair was, even in roles as idiotic as this, his drawing power was killed in a matter of weeks. This was especially distressing since he and Goldberg were the only two guys in the entire company that had been able to affect the ratings in any way. Well, in any positive way, at least. End quote. And in fact, things are about to get even worse for WCW because next week, Nitro will be preempted on TNT due to the NBA playoffs, so Raw will have Monday night all to themselves. How will that end up playing out for the WWF? Spoiler alert, really fucking well, but we'll get deep into that on the next episode. And so, let's take it to the Raw Synopsis. So I have to say, I was surprised at how wrestling-heavy tonight's episode of Raw was. After the first two corporate ministry promos, the final 75 minutes of the show were basically nothing but matches. No vignettes, no promos, just match after match. To say that's a rarity for the WWF in 1999 would be an understatement, but you know what? This was a really enjoyable show. And I say that even though we barely got any screen time from Stone Cold and The Rock. Both guys were in the main event segment, which lasted a total of about six minutes, but the entire show before that was pretty much focused on the corporate ministry versus the union. And surprisingly, that actually made for a really good show, even with everything centering around two, uh, not-so-great factions. So yes, if you have free time and want to check out an episode of Raw, I would definitely give this one a big thumbs up. Or, to paraphrase a wise man, this was an episode of Raw... That you ought to respect, son. See what I did there? See? Yeah. But okay, before we finish up, here are some notes from this week's issue of the Wrestling Observer. In even more depressing WCW news, both Juventud Guerrera and Jerry Flynn were arrested for DUIs this week. Flynn's was a simple DUI, but Hoovy, on the other hand, had to be arrested at gunpoint for reckless driving and fleeing from the police. And, of course, because of this, Hoovy was immediately released from WCW because, yeah, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. He's there for another year and a half until he ends up attacking some more cops during a tour in Australia. You know, for Juventud Guerrera, Fuck the Police isn't just a song. It's a way of life. And speaking of being under the influence, according to Dave Meltzer, both the WWF and WCW's media people have made it clear to various media outlets that they do not want interviewers to ask the wrestlers about drugs or wrestler deaths. And I'm sure that's going to work out really well in about three weeks when literally all anyone will want to ask them about is a certain wrestler's death, but I suppose we'll get there soon enough. And speaking of tragedy, because of the Columbine High School massacre, WCW has dropped the plans for Alex Wright's new repackaged gimmick. 
They had been airing vignettes where he was shown wearing a black trench coat, but because we as a society in 1999 apparently determined that anyone who wears a trench coat is a school shooter, the gimmick has been dropped for now. Spoiler alert though, he will eventually debut the character in August once everyone no longer cares about teenagers being murdered. This week, it was also announced that WCW will be taking a page out of the WWE's playbook, and for some reason, they will be putting out their own cologne, which will be called simply Nitro for Men. Now, WCW putting out a cologne is not very memorable. However, what is rather memorable is when Medusa comes out to model the cologne at Halloween Havoc 1999, because Bobby the Brain Heenan proceeds to absolutely bury WCW's own product live on the air. And a little treat for you here, as she has in her right hand, I understand, a bottle of the brand new WCW Maestro Cologne. You ever smell that cologne? Yes, I have. Boy, that stinks. And it's horrible. And she's going to come out here, and why would she be this? That stuff is brutal. It smells like a rest stop on the highway. Did you know that? Yeah, it smells kind of like liquid kitty litter. And she, she's going to come out here and, and bottle the cologne for us. Uh, I, I, she could be careful. There'll be some cats following her around here. There she comes. Hours to be. You know, that cologne smells like the, uh, smells like the men's room at the Newark airport. And finally, Meltzer mentions how they discussed the recently deceased Ravishing Rick Rude on Live with Regis and Kathy Lee this week. Why is that noteworthy? Well, because when Rude appeared on the show with Bobby Heenan back in 1989 to promote SummerSlam, Kathy Lee Gifford singled that moment out as one of the lowest points in her career because Rude opened his robe to reveal Kathy Lee's face airbrushed on the crotch of his tights. Now keep in mind, Regis Philbin is a huge wrestling fan, as evidenced by him being heavily involved at WrestleMania 7, but Kathy Lee, eh, not so much. In fact, let's go to Kathy Lee's 1992 autobiography, appropriately titled, I Can't Believe I Said That, to get her thoughts on that moment with Rick Rude. Quote, Then there was the animal known as Ravishing Rick Rude. Now, I have a problem with Regis' wrestling thing. I think the wrestler's shtick lowers the quality of the show a notch or two. Some of them are pretty sleazy. But the absolute low point was a year or so before when Ravishing Rick Rude came out, bragging about his rude awakening at wrestling arenas. Young women are picked to go into the ring with him, where this muscle-bound baboon embraces and kisses them until they just pretend to faint dead away with ardor as he stands over his latest conquest. It's a pathetic spectacle. This guy comes out in his simply ravishing sequin robe, kisses my hand ever so gently, and sits there giving me the eye like he'd been behind bars for a decade, non-stop. Rick gave a woman in the audience an awakening to stripper music and then dropped his robe in front of me. I didn't believe what I saw. This was absolutely unscripted. On his clingy, nothing-left-to-the-imagination lycra tights, he had painted my face over his crotch. He stood there, hands behind his head, thrusting and flexing, half-naked. It was so gross, I didn't know what to do or where to go. I put my hands over my face and ran up the stairs at the rear of the set. Meanwhile, he turned his butt to the camera, and, of course, there was Regis' face painted on Rick's quivering, gyrating glutes. This got my vote for the worst breach of taste in the history of the show. End quote. So clearly, 
Kathy Lee was not a fan of ravishing Rick Rude, but apparently, in the wake of Rude's recent death, they let bygones be bygones, and they chatted about him on live with Regis and Kathy Lee. So I guess it just goes to show you, all is forgiven when someone dies too soon. Insert Michael Jackson joke here. But so, on that note, I think we can wrap this episode up. As always, thank you for listening to the Raw Attitude Podcast. I am Henry Hugepex, the suplex-throwing human duplex, and I will remind you once again to feel free to subscribe to us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play. Send us an email at rawattitudepodcast at gmail.com or tweet us at rawattitudepod. Or more importantly, write us a five-star review on iTunes, because that helps us find an even wider audience. And of course, if you do that, I will be sure to read the review on this very podcast and give you full credit for doing so. Or if you're more of a fan of that whole brevity thing, just rate us five stars on iTunes without writing a review, because that's very helpful too. I have nothing further to add about this episode, so I will now leave you with a clip of an episode of the NBC sitcom Suddenly Susan, starring Brooke Shields. Why? Because this particular episode featured none other than Hulk Hogan, who, in the storyline of the show, was running against Brooke Shields for a seat on the Board of Supervisors. And by the way, the Hulkster is listed in the credits as Terry Hogan for this appearance, which marks literally the only time he has ever been billed as that for some reason. But the interesting thing here is that Suddenly Susan actually aired on this very night, which means if you were a WCW fan, you could have watched Nitro, or you could have flipped over to NBC to watch Hulk Hogan on Suddenly Susan, followed by Macho Man Randy Savage on an episode of Mad About You. And yes, that is actually true. So presumably, if you're WCW, you wouldn't have even wanted to promote those two appearances, because it would mean that you would be encouraging viewers to turn off Nitro. I mean, goddamn, WCW just can't catch a break these days, huh? Even in the times when their wrestlers get prime guest appearances on NBC sitcoms, they still can't capitalize on it. Tough times. But anyway, enjoy that Suddenly Susan clip where Hulk Hogan is debating Brooke Shields, and I will catch you next time when I discuss an episode of Monday Night Raw that was unopposed by Nitro, which leads to record-breaking results in the ratings. See you then. There are people who say that shelters only encourage the homeless to gravitate to our city. How would you address these critics? Mr. Hogan? I'd kick their ass! And as for the homeless? I'd feed their ass! Mr. Hogan, you cannot answer every question about the city using a variation on a silly three-word slogan. Well, it sounds like... Somebody wants to get their ass kicked. Yeah. <laughs>